You know, Tehran is a big city. You never see this city quiet. There was no one on the street. Everyone is inside watching the game. It's 1997, 18 years since the revolution. The country is still reeling from a war with Iraq. But today, everyone is watching soccer. The match was at 1.30 p.m. And in a school, you couldn't watch the football. This is Sarah. She's 15 years old at the time, a sophomore in high school. I went to the manager of a school and I begged her, please let us go home and watch this match. And she was like, on one condition. I was like, what? She said, you have to bring all the students to the prayer room. Those girls have to do a noon prayer. <laughs> then she will let us go. And I was like, this is the condition. We went to the prayer room. Did a pray, then escaped the school. It was a very, very sensitive game. Uh, I was a university student, and most of classes were canceled. Nasreen is also in class at her university that day, 20 miles away. We had this very, very strict professor. He, he, he can't even hear such these things. He said, like, this bullshit that you want to cancel my class to go to stadium. Nasreen is 19 at the time. So I was at his class having my radio, my small radio. I said to everyone, OK, don't worry. I will let you know when we make goal. Was it in your bra? Like, where did you put it? I, I hold it in my hand under my magnae, under my scarf. So you couldn't see that. I love that the scarf hit the radio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what the freak? This scarf is, was very good for me. It was kind of uh, adventure. The city of Melbourne glitters in the early evening as the MCG prepares to host Australia's most important football match in four years. It is Australia versus Iran, the second and final leg of a two-match contest which began in the cauldron of the Azadi Stadium in Tehran a week ago. In 1997, women are still shut out of Azadi Stadium and all live soccer games in Iran. Crackdowns continue on many types of freedom, Government surveillance and censorship are rampant. In the midst of this, a group of women make it their mission to infiltrate Azadi Stadium and lift the ban on women watching games. They call themselves the White Scarves. I'm Shimol Yai from Shirazad Productions. And from 3430 Podcasts, this is Pink Card, Episode 3, The White Scarves. This is the story of that group of women told through six soccer games. This is game number one, Australia versus Iran. It's the final qualifying match for the 98 World Cup. If Iran loses, they won't make the cup. But if they win, or even tie, they'll get in. Well, it should have been an easy save for the goalkeeper. Iran was once a global soccer superpower. Now, a 
They're getting annihilated. The only major move Iran makes at the start of the game. The, the player expected to, to do a lot for Iran. That's his first touch. And not on the ball either. Is fouling an Australian player. 30 minutes in. Cure to the back post. Australia scores its first goal. Did your heart drop? Yeah, I was so upset, like very, very emotional. Everyone said, you just risk your life. Because Dr. Mehmet Oltochan, if he could like grab you with, with radio, definitely would kill you. At halftime, it's Australia 1, Iran 0. It is 1-0 Australia. As the Iranian players leave the field, you can see in the faces of each player a clear mirror of what has transpired in the last 18 years in Iran. Deep in Iranian territory, Iraqi armor chalks up fresh successes on the battlefield. The year after the revolution, 1980... Good evening, from Baghdad. Iraq invades Iran, leading to a bloody eight-year war. Hundreds of thousands of Iranians are massacred. We, we moved to Mashhad because Tehran was not safe anymore. But, like, it was a very bad situation because mm. of all uh, the war situation and sanctions uh, against Iran. For people all around Iran, including Nasreen and Sara, as very young girls, soccer became an obsession, a needed escape. Football became so popular. I felt like, oh, I, I like this team. I start to recognize the players. I became the huge sport fan. Nasreen and Sara didn't know each other at this time, but they are both mesmerized by the TV and the radio as the second half begins. In the first two minutes, Australia scores its second goal. Well, Iran have already blown three chances to qualify for the World Cup final. The announcers basically call the game. But then, something peculiar happens. The Iranian goalie stops the game. He points to a two-foot gap in the netting of his goalpost and says, it needs to be fixed before we continue. An Australian fan had stormed the field and cut Iran's net. So reps run down to the field, reweaving the net for several minutes. When the game resumes, just minutes later, Iran scores its first goal. Two minutes after that, Iran's lead striker, Asia's reigning player of the year, Kodadad Azizi, takes the ball and shoots. He scores. Disaster for Australia. In minutes, Iran has gone from 0-2 to 2-2. Australia was a better team. But uh, that's football, as I say. The match is over. The game ends in a tie. And because Iran scored more away goals, they got the World Cup spot. Back in Iran, I shouted, Vivon, Vivon! The country erupts. Nasreen is still sitting with her hidden radio in her university class. I, I couldn't be silent anymore. We were very happy and all of us went to the streets. All across Iran, people run outside. Cars stop wherever they are and begin blasting music. 
that specific match, everyone from old to young, women, men, everyone get involved. I remember a girl went up on top of Pekan, a taxi, and danced. A spontaneous block party launches all over the country. It was a national celebration. Everyone get a sherbet box of sweet and a gift to others. Kids blast out fireworks. Firework, car horn. The traffic didn't move. People stop everything, their job, shout, screaming. And then women... Women take the chance to remove their scarf. Women throw off their hijabs. Even boys come and say that, okay, nobody can touch her, but go and dance. Kind of like showing solidarity with women, (laughs) at least once in a while. Both Sara and Nasreen told me after what felt like a national purgatory that had lasted nearly 20 years, for the first time, there is a sense in Iran that joy is possible. Until the midnight, we were in the streets. And the celebrations didn't stop. Sara told me the next day at her school. Imagine everyone dancing, something really special. It never happened in my whole life. (laughs) They were breaking the big law, but it was such a fun. I forgot that it was a law that you can't dance in public. And not in a school, especially Islamic school. They will expel you. That evening, a crowd gathered at the stadium. The government warned women to stay home. I was a like, young person that say, okay, why you are saying no to me? I really wanted to go to the stadium. She wasn't alone in that thinking. That night, 5,000 women crushed the gates of Azadi, alongside the men. And for good measure, once inside the stadium, they strip off their veils in defiance. This moment stays with Nasreen and Sara for a long time. They see a different Iran, and it changes them. This is when Sara starts buying soccer magazines, opening her up to feminist ideas that had basically been banned. Iranian magazine editors would sneak in radical articles in sports mags to avoid the censors. And so, as her love of soccer grows, so does her love for these feminist ideas. Nasreen was pursuing a physics degree at the time. She eventually realizes that no matter how many doctoral degrees she acquires, her rights as a citizen continue to dissolve. She abandons her science studies and enrolls in grad school for women's studies. In 2005, she meets several like-minded students. They start meeting on Mondays to talk about issues they see in Iran. Sara hears about the group through a neighbor. We had a meeting in one of the girls' house. Yeah, secret. To avoid being stopped by the police in the evening, the group meet early in the morning. How many girls would meet? Maybe 11. So like about the same amount of people that are on a soccer team. So 11 11 girls would meet. We had different campaign in that group of girls. The other people, they were responsible for stoning campaign. The other one, they were for family laws. The legal marriage age at that time had only gone up from 9 years old in 79 to 13 years old in 2005. Me and two others, we were mostly responsible for the stadium campaign. Nasreen, Sara, 
and Mabuba. This is Mabuba at a stadium's campaign meeting. She's an OG feminist and activist. She was one of the women who helped push the Shah out of the country in 79. Mabuba told me she found the women for the stadium campaign via teen blogs online. They were different. How they love football. They were new generation. Not like us, my generation. Our thing was about imperialism, colonialism, and not about the ordinary life of people. When I was young, as a revolutionary, sport was very bourgeois. Like, oh my God, oh, you are so bougie. I find, oh my God, that is about expression, freedom of expression. It was kind of liberation, you know. Mabube, Nasrin, and Sara thought fighting for women to enter Azadi Stadium could get the attention to make a bigger change and shake up the country. And so... The group started in June 2005. We had that match with Bahrain. That's how we get to Game 2. Iran versus Bahrain. 2005. At Azadi Stadium. It was also during the presidential election. In the spring of that year, a new politician, Mustafa Moin, announced that he was running for president. He was a reformist, like the current guy at the time, Hatami. So they announced a big public appearance together at Azadi. his way to his seat amidst a crowd numbering over 100,000 at Azadi Stadium. To make a show of how Moin was more women-friendly than any predecessor, he announced he would personally bus his female supporters into Azadi Stadium to watch the World Cup qualifying match against Bahrain. There was lots of foreign journalists. They came to cover this match. A World Cup qualifying match meant there'd be a lot of cameras there and a lot of international attention. The day of the match, the women got up early and arrived at the designated bus stop. When they pulled up to the gates of Azadi, they were not allowed inside. They realized the political female followers were just being used for a photo op. None of them would be seeing the game. I wanted to tell them that, do you see that they are using you? These are like reformists. Reformists always are like this. They just wanted to take some photos. They had their photos. They, okay, now we are going back. The guards confiscated their posters and ripped them into pieces. We say, hey, we are here. We want to see your game. We just sit in front of the gate. But still, they didn't want us even sit there. People, they are passing, going inside, and they are men. They are free men. So the guards then... They beat us. <laughs> they really beat us really badly. Sara actually told me that the officers called over female agents to do the dirty work. A female agents, troops, and these women, they just circulating around us. There was also a line of the soldiers with their boots. They just pushed their boots to our back. They recorded everything. This audio you're hearing in the background is actually from a video from Mabubet. She got everything on tape. I remember there was a woman activist, the only one wearing chador, the black hijab, and they really beat her up. It was really scary, like maybe we are going to prison or something worse is going to happen. After all that planning, they found themselves blocked at the gates, 
their posters ripped apart, sitting on the ground, shielding themselves from the violence of boots. Though they knew their plan was dangerous, they did not know it would go this badly. The male fans entering the stadium simply stepped over their bodies to enter the game. The politicians inside pretended it didn't even happen. That day, Iran won 1-0, and the women went home defeated. Just two weeks later, conservative hardliner Ahmadinejad became president. Things were bad for women under the old president. They got worse under this new one. Ahmadinejad came to power and they stopped shutting down civil society. He pushed through legislation which made it harder for women to get jobs and into schools. And security forces in Iran became even more focused on punishing women. With the World Cup coming up, the women felt it was more and more important that they get the message out, that they use the stadium as an international alarm, sounding out to the world what was really happening in Iran. They thought long and hard about their slogan. They knew that they wanted to incorporate the stadium's name, Azadi, which again in Farsi means freedom. Their posters read, It was like, Sahmeman Nimi as Azadi. Our share is half of freedom. I think it was a great slogan at the time. Game number three, Iran versus Costa Rica. Both teams were headed to the World Cup in Germany that summer. Iran hadn't made it back since that game in 98. It's now 2006. Sarah rises before dawn, drives and parks her car, and heads to the bus that takes fans straight to the gates of Azadi. Several of her comrades arrive. The girls look into each other's eyes in anticipation. They know anything can happen to them. They hide their signs under their hijabs. As the sun comes out and the bus starts its engine, idling there in the parking lot, Sara can tell something isn't right. A group of guards show up. They force us to go to a minibus. They load them onto a separate vehicle and they start heading south in the opposite direction of the stadium. We were really scared, we were more angry. They took them to the desert and just let, let them go. Sara and her friends walk for hours, finally encounter a car and hitchhike back into the city. But the entire way, their frustration intensifies. That's when Nasreen got an idea. They had to come up with a way to make their message visible. And the one thing a man, a security guard even, would never touch or rip up was their hijab. Nasreen suggests painting their motto across the back of their scarves. The idea of writing our mottos on white scarf was mine. That um, was a genius idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the time, I, I didn't expect, but yeah, it was, it was good. So we wrote that, we printed that on the white scarves, and that's why they call us white scarves since then. They spray-painted their slogan in red on white hijabs and donned them before the next game. (laughs) 
Game number four, Iran vs. Jordan, August 15th, 2008. A battle for the West Asian Football Federation Championship. The girls came with their new message, now literally worn on their heads. Because their Chador-clad friend was brutally beaten and targeted in their first attempted infiltration, this time, they trained beforehand on what to do should a guard start kicking them or beating them. Their goal was to... Get a little beaten and then believe. Not so much and not very little. Getting beat up was good if they could document it. But they didn't want anyone to get so hurt that they couldn't recover. Everything was working according to plan until they got to the gate. Police suddenly pushed us and wanted to close the gate and don't let us go inside. They tried to push the gate to open and when we succeeded to open the gate, the guardians pushed back. And in that moment when we were screaming and we were so angry about this injustice, I felt pain in my leg and I just saw my leg is between doors. Her leg was, was broken. So I screamed, my leg is broken, my leg is broken. Oh, help, help, help. And then all of journalists, they came, they, they took picture. Oh, this is getting so violence between police and protester. And then I just felt that I am on the floor and I am screaming and t- I'm keeping my leg in my hand and massaging and my friends around me. Ambulance is coming with pew, 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 pew. The ambulance takes Mabube to the ER. When I went to hospital, they said, Oh, Mabobe, this is just normal injury. Your leg is not broke. Mabobe gets major press, and photos of the girls in their white scarves with red writing and their slogan gets printed in international papers. The white scarves become famous in Iran overnight. After this victory, both Mabobe and Nasreen were arrested. Both women had already been notorious for writing for women's magazines and politically organizing, outside of just their fight to get into the stadium. A year after this game, Mabube was released on one condition, that she delete every online post about the stadium protests. She did, but not before backing up extra copies, which is why we can hear the sounds of their protests now. That year, she fled to America and never returned. Nasreen joined stateside shortly after. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. 
That's all one word. Broom gate. Nasreen and Mabuba had been activists for decades. They were already known and targeted for speaking out. They knew this day might come. But Sara had started young, and with Nasreen and Mabuba gone, at just 25 years old, Sara goes from being the baby of the group to its leader. Game number five, Iran versus South Korea, February 11, 2009. A World Cup qualifying match with Iran's biggest rival in the Asian League. This is my favorite game in White Scarf's history. And it all starts in a thunderstorm. It was such a rainy day. It was one of those, like, really heavy raining in Tehran. Sara and two younger friends huddle in their car outside the Korean embassy in downtown Tehran. They are drenched. I remember I was soaked wet, and uh, we came to the car and put the heater in the car. They start running their car heater to dry their clothes. All the windows in the car, it was like so foggy, so no one outside could see us. Yeah, we took out our scarves and put it on those places. The air was coming out, so it gets dry a bit, and we don't get sick. I was the oldest one at the time, and I was like 25. The car seats are covered in flyers they made with a message written in Korean. It's not easy to find someone that speaks Korean. We found through a friend a guy that could write Korean. They wrote on a paper that your Iranian sisters, they want to watch this match with you, but they cannot. Sara and her friends had staked out the travel route of the South Korean delegation for months, watching to see the route that the delegates were going to take to get to Azadi Stadium. Their plan was simple, to hand some flyers out about the stadium and go home. All of a sudden, the girls see the Korean delegation walking out of the embassy and toward their bus. It's still pouring rain. Sara jumps out of the car to hand them flyers, followed by her three friends. But the Korean delegates just sort of look at the girls. I have to say... They were so confused. It was like they are coming from another world. I can completely understand because even though we explained it to them, they were like, what? We cannot understand what you're talking about. Thinking that their plan had been derailed, back inside their car, the windows fog up again. We heard someone knocking on the window. There was a guy, Iranian guy, but belongs to the embassy. Oh no. Yeah. It's a man in a uniform knocking on their window. At this point, they're like, fuck! Game over. I put down the window and he looked at us and he was like, do you want to go to the match? I was like, yeah, obviously. And he gave us three tickets. Wait, what? This Iranian officer, he just gave you three tickets to the game? Yeah. You know, at the time, we were so excited and we were thanking him immensely. But at that moment, I wasn't really sure they're going to let us go. Just as they're about to start driving, another officer shows up. And he was like, "Okay, drive behind me. The white scarves immediately start recording everything. At a stoplight, a car filled with boys driving alongside see the girls heading to the stadium. 
Their mouths drop as they point to the girls. Sarah and her friends wave back, and one lets out a giggle. I never saw a ticket before, so it was nice to have a ticket in your hands. They cannot believe their good fortune. And then... They block the highways. The Korean fans go to the stadium with the escort of the police, and we were behind the police. Really sort of VIP type. They are almost afraid to breathe as they enter the outer gates of Azadi. In the video Sarah took from inside her car, you can see the thunderclouds part ways above the stadium as they drive in. They are in soccer heaven. So we entered to the stadium and it was magical. I was like over the moon and the clouds. At Azadi, there are three security gates, one after another. Three times when you can be caught and arrested. Sarah had never gotten past the first gate. Like, I remember the times that we were beaten up and everything, but this time with the, like, escort, we entered to the stadium. At the first, you are patted down. At the second, they check your ticket. At the third one, they check one last time that you are a man. They pass through all three, and no one stops them. Now, they know that you can't go to the game. Why would they do that? Because we had a ticket, they thought that probably for some reason we have these tickets. We have some uh, sort of permission. One peculiar note about the stadium worth mentioning is that women of other nationalities are allowed into Azadi Stadium, even women from other Muslim countries. It's just Iranian women who are banned. When we jump out of the car, the same policeman, he told me, don't cheer for Korea, cheer for Iran. I was like, oh, not funny. <laughs> this was Sarah's first time inside the stadium. With the line of Korean women that we entered, they were so excited. In the video Sarah took, you see the four girls as they walk through the underpass, hidden now amongst Korean schoolchildren and their parents. As they make it to the end of the tunnel, the noise of the stadium starts roaring before them and they see the seats and the green of the pitch. As the players warm up, Sarah is overwhelmed with emotion. You always watch TV, but when you enter the actual place, it's totally different. The vibe, the sound, it's like from two dimension to three dimension, which was really overwhelming. She is packed into the stands with 120,000 fans. I was receiving so much phone calls, even from the foreign journalists from outside, that I couldn't even watch the football. She doesn't know whether to enjoy the game and watch it or document it all. She and her friends start learning the Korean cheers to try to blend in. Unbeknownst to Sara, the cameras pick her up. And miles away, her friends are watching the game on television and see Sara and the four girls sitting in the enemy's stands. They record their TV screens with their phones and send it to Sara. Back at Azadi, Iran scores. Sara snaps out of her euphoria of watching the match and gets back to work. We start to give those flyers to the Korean women and start to take a photo with them. Suddenly, they're approached by a female security guard. She came to us and she was like, what is this thing? Why are you doing political things in there? She was like really angry. And I was like, okay, we are in trouble. 
The girls try to shake her off, but she would not let it go. She handed us to the security agent of the stadium. I was like, okay, we are going to prison tonight. And uh, the guy, he looked at us and I was like, while you were sitting with Korea, sit over here. It was so nice. Four of us, we just watched football and like our mind was blowing. Leaving the stadium, Sarah and her friends are just so overcome with joy. I think we were like adrenaline. It was pumping in our blood. They end up driving on the wrong side of the freeway on their way home. Completely opposite side. I could like kill them on that day, but it was really amazing. And when came back, like I saw like BBC, they were talking about us. I felt like tomorrow they're gonna come and arrest us, but it didn't. And it is like my nicest memory of this campaign. In a poetic way, that same day happened to be the 30th anniversary of the Iranian revolution. It, it was a magical moment, like miracle. But I have to say, after 2009, we felt that something better is going to happen. We didn't know that uprising will happen and, you know, everything go darker than darker. Exactly one year to the day after Sara's victory at the National Stadium, Tehran streets are swarmed with thousands of young people protesting, followed by a crackdown. That past summer, Ahmadinejad had just won a second term, and most assumed the election had been rigged. A woman named Neto was shot on camera. In a few short days, thousands of young people protested and were arrested and killed. It was dubbed the Green Movement. Sara, what happened to the white scarves? After 2009, I was basically the only one who didn't went to jail. And uh, all of them, when they came out of uh, prison, they went abroad. For four years, I can say, I, I really went crazy because all our group completely shattered. Today, Sara is the last member of the White Scarves in Iran. It's really difficult because my friends also get really overwhelmed. They cut their relationship because it's scary for them. I was totally depressed. This brings us to our last game, Iran versus Morocco. The World Cup in St. Petersburg, Russia, 2018. By this time, Sara is an underground legend. Human Rights Org stateside have given her an official ticket. They fly her out to St. Petersburg, her first ever World Cup game. It was a really hot day, humid. According to television announcers, it was feverish. The game of the day had a round ticket on Morocco in Group B. It was my first time that I had a ticket, like legit ticket to Iran's football match in World Cup. Imagine like there was all those media outlet that I was talking like from morning to the night and all of them they felt like I must be the happiest of my whole life. Sara is in the stands. She's watching her favorite team win at a World Cup game and she's there as an equal fan with a real ticket. It should feel like a victory 
but I wasn't happy. I thought like I am 35 years old at the time and my biggest dream was to watch a football match. Sitting in the stands, Sara realizes she had spent most of her life up until that point fighting to get into the stadium. It occurs to her that maybe it hadn't been for anything. I think I talked to all the media outlets was repeating so much this stuff. It was like frustrating for me. But mostly I was thinking about all those girls that we start a stadium campaign. I wish we were celebrating that moment together. After the game, Human Rights Watch sponsors her to fly all the way to FIFA headquarters in Switzerland to talk about the stadium campaign. I remember I met with Gianni Infantino, the head of the FIFA, and it was like, I'm getting old. It's been 13 years when you want to make change. She says Infantino wrote a letter on the spot, threatening Iran with FIFA sanctions if they didn't let women in. Did it help at all? No, it didn't. Sara closes the White Scarves chapter and begins to exist solely online under a new moniker, Sara Open Stadiums. Because it becomes too dangerous for her to be in person, her activism moves almost entirely online. The Monday meetings she enjoyed with her friends are now a distant memory. She works entirely alone. But at the end of the day, Sarah says there is one small victory. It took us years. Now, anytime when they are talking about women's rights, even conservatives, definitely in top of that, they mention women going to the stadium. This is a big deal. And it's amazing. Like Sara, Iran's first modern poet, Elam Taj, began to question her life in Iran at 15 years old. That was the year she was married off to a tyrant. So she began to write the truth about her life, but because her husband forbid her from writing. She'd have to hide her poems. She hid them in the walls. She buried them in her garden. And when she died, her son unburied them and had them published. One of the poems was titled To the Future Women of Iran. In it, she wrote, The girl of Iran's tomorrow is no girl of today. Like it or not, free from fetters I will be. Those blissful days I will not behold. Yet she, who is my peer, will see them all. On the next and last episode of Pink Heart, we visit Zainab in Turkey and tell the epic tale of today's generation. Card was created and hosted by me, Shimol Yai, and our associate producer is Homa Sarabi. Audio mixing and original music is by Ramtin Arablui. Editing by Sarah Quevedo. Nisa Azakizadeh wrote our theme song. Megan Urbino, Sue Bird, and me, Shimol Yai, are our executive producers. Our production coordinator is Marisa Bravo, and we had help from Diba Motisham. A special thanks to Nina Ansari, Maryam Shojai, Minky Warden, Hadi Gayemi, Hucheng Chahabi, Ramin Golbang, Moya Dodd, 
Goyvet Somoza, Melinda Romero, and everyone at the Center for Human Rights in Iran. For 30 for 30 podcast, Marsha Cook is executive producer, Eve Tro is senior editorial producer, Kat Senki is line producer, and Gus Navarro is associate producer. Licensing support from Jennifer Thorpe and director of development is Adam Newhouse. Thank you to all the members of the White Scarves. See you next episode. You won't want to miss it.